Hello, people. Welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and uh, this is episode number 59. And today we're sitting down with a very special guest. His name is Mark Karras. So Mark is a theologian, a scholar, a therapist. He wrote a book called Divine Echoes, which is all about prayer. And so that's going to be kind of the, the bulk of our conversation today will be about, about prayer. Uh, one of the things in particular that I really asked him is like, what does prayer look like uh, for someone who is in the stages of deconstruction slash reconstruction, who's really thinking about um, who God is, and therefore really thinking about how exactly do you talk to this God? Uh, because I don't know about you, but for me, uh, growing up, I picked up these phrases in, uh, to pray, right? So, you know, dear God, uh, be with this person. Uh, dear God, pour out your love on this person. Dear God, uh, fill this place with your spirit, right? Uh, and that's all fine and dandy, uh, but the reality is is that I believe in a God who uh, is always pouring out his love uh, on people. Uh, I believe in a God whose spirit is always present everywhere that I am. And so asking God to pour out his love and for his spirit to be present uh, sometimes feels kind of irrelevant for me and just feels like a, a phrase that I'm praying just because I don't know what else to pray. And so I asked him, what does it look like to pray? And uh, give me some some thoughts for uh, people who are um, in the stages of deconstruction, reconstruction. What does prayer look like for them? So uh, it was a really helpful conversation. Uh, I picked up a lot from it. I think that you will too. And so I'm really excited uh, to jump into that. Uh, a couple things first. Uh, number one, uh, next week we are starting a brand new series. It will be 11 weeks. So next week is like an introduction to the series. Then we have 10 uh, solid weeks following that. And uh, the series is called uh, Setting the Bible Free. And so we're going to talk all about the Bible and various topics that are that are swirling around the Bible. And uh, we're going to come away uh, I think really encouraged and inspired to pick up our Bibles afresh and uh, look at them with fresh eyes. And uh, I'm excited about it. Uh, next week, like I said, will be an introduction. Uh, and then we have, uh, let's see, we have seven, eight guests that are lined up uh, for the series. And then there will be two uh, episodes that will be solo episodes like this, where you and I just talk uh, and dialogue, not like this, not like this episode, we have Mark coming on, but kind of like this where you and I are just talking and uh, I'm sharing some different things. So I have a couple things I want to share with you um, that I have learned about the Bible over the last year. Uh, maybe look at a couple passages of scripture from a different angle and all that different kind of stuff. So I'm really excited about it. Uh, setting the Bible free starts next week. Uh, secondly, patreon.com slash what if project. If this uh project, this podcast has encouraged you, inspired you in your walk with God, uh, head over there, check it out. Uh, there's different tiers of giving that you can uh, sign up to support the show. So anywhere from $3 a month up to $30 a month, or you can create your own tier um, as well. And every tier has its own reward. So based upon, uh, depending on you know what level you sign up with, you get whatever reward is on that level and whatever reward is on every level below that level. Um, as well. So pretty cool stuff. Head over there, check it out. $3 a month is like a cup of coffee. That's not not a whole lot. So uh, maybe you you can do that. Uh, 14 people are patrons and uh, a shout out to all of them. Thank you so much. 
uh, for supporting the show, uh, for supporting me. Uh, it really means a lot to me. And uh, your money is is really doing amazing things because uh, we've been able to pay upfront for all the hosting fees uh, for the podcast and for the website. Uh, I was also able to go to Wild Goose over the summer because of your money. Uh, so thank you, thank you, thank you so much uh, for believing in me and believing in the show and supporting this crazy thing that we are doing. So all of that to say, uh, this is episode number 59, and it's my chat with my friend, uh, Mark Karras. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. Uh, I am super excited to introduce to you this week's guest. Uh, he's an author, therapist, I would say public the- theologian, and uh, also was my classmate all the way back in the 2000s in Dr. Robles's uh, abnormal psychology class, the one and only Mark Harris. Wow. Uh, yeah, I forgot Dr. <laughs> Let's get Robles. Get back in the time machine. Let's go all the way back. Wow. Yeah, it's great to be here uh, with you, Glenn. Yeah. It's, yeah, man, it's, it's good to have you. So, uh, how long has it been since we've seen each other? I was thinking, oh my goodness, twelve years. Nia College. Yeah, twelve years. And God, who the heck were we back then? I don't even know, man. <laughs> it's hard to think back. <laughs> we were, uh, you know, some similarities, but man, I imagine so much change too. A lot has changed for me, and I think a lot has changed for you as well from what I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, that said, catch me up to speed a little bit. Like uh, maybe tell our listeners a little bit about you. Uh, who are you? What's your story? Uh, what do you do? And what have you been doing since the last 15 years since I've seen you? <laughs> wow. There's such big questions, Glenn. Mm-hmm. Um, my story, God, it's an amalgamation of... I need your story in like three minutes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, well, since then, since Naya College, fast forward through, you know, a counseling degree uh, yep. of, and working in a church full time for some years and uh, becoming an ordained pastor, becoming a licensed therapist, um, living in Japan for a few years uh, due to my wife being in the military. Um writing a few books Hmm. and just pretty much doing what I love to do, doing what I went to school for minus at this point, you know, I'm an adjunct uh, professor at uh, Point Loma Nazarene university. So I I love to teach. What do you teach there? Right now I'm teaching uh, a couple of counseling courses. So counseling theories and faith integration, Mm -hmm. uh, both one and two. And so just looking at the various models of therapy, by now there's probably 450 to 500 different models, but kind of, um, yeah, probably 15 of them and seeing how they integrate uh, with faith and really spirituality, mostly from the Christian tradition, but I've had some, um, you know, Muslims and uh, a few other people from different orientations uh, that were there too, so. Wow. Love, love doing that and love being a dad. And yeah, just, uh, I, I'm not working in a church though. I am attending a church. 
okay. by not working in a church. Yeah. Okay. Um, what you said you used to work in a church. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what was your yeah. position there? So for a long time, I, I worked and served in various traditions. Okay. I worked about four years in a Korean Presbyterian church. And so started off with uh, actually K through five and then became the uh, youth pastor. Okay. And then I worked in, well, I served in the Christian Missionary Alliance for a little bit. Yeah. Um, more of a weekend thing, kind of leading worship. Mm-hmm. And I got, actually got ordained in a Southern Baptist church. And you've been all you over know? the place. <laughs> yeah. And I, I worked um, there for about four years, very sure. far from Southern Baptist hmm. uh, doctrine, of, of, of course, by now. And then, you know, I went to school. Uh, that was a, um, got my MDiv. And I was in a Methodist uh, tradition. So okay. definitely done some traveling through various traditions. And I actually served in a Pentecostal church for probably four years. Mm. And that was more of kind of, that's where I got saved into. Okay. And, you know, did a little bit of preaching, mostly kind of just being a new Christian and doing whatever the pastor told me to do. Sure. Yeah. I remember all the way back in Dr. Robles' class, we had a, uh, I don't even know if you remember this, but this always stuck out of my mind. We had this one uh, like lecture series on counseling. Hmm. And we had to pair up in partners and you were my <laughs> partner. I don't know if, I don't know if you remember that, but you were my partner. And I remember thinking oh, wow. to myself, like, I had like no idea what was going on because I didn't feel like that was really um, like where my life was headed, but right. for the, the degree and stuff, we had a way to do that. And I remember being paired up with you and you were like a master even then at the questions you're asking me. And I remember thinking to myself, is this guy trying to make me cry like in the middle of class because he is so <laughs> good at this so it's just interesting to me that i noticed that all the way back then and here you are um, all yeah. these years later, teaching counseling that's pretty cool the gift of trauma and the pain trauma yes. and choosing to become better and not bitter i think that's yeah been very important for me absolutely so you've written uh, a couple of books and your latest one is called divine echoes and the subtitle is Reconciling Prayer with the Uncontrolling Love of God. So let's start with the title. Uh, one of the things that I, I sometimes ask authors is to kind of explain the title of the book and give us like a two or three minute drive by of what this thing is about. So like imagine you're in an Uber mm-hmm. and uh, you're three minutes from your stop and the guy's like, so what do you do? And you're like, well, I'm an author and I wrote Divine Echoes. And he's like, what? So take right. us through that a minute. Yeah. How would you answer that? Sure. I would say, yeah, dude, I was just thinking about prayer, particularly <laughs> petitionary prayer, right? There's yeah. a lot of different ways to pray. Mm-hmm. And then I was looking at my prayers, praying for Aunt Mary's sickness or cancer and this uh, aftermath and this disaster and for these people and this crisis. Mm-hmm. And I just asked myself, is it effective? Does it do anything? Mm-hmm. Then there were some other experiences of praying for dear family members who my mom and my brother and one, my mom died from drug overdose and my brother's in prison for life uh, as schizophrenia, you know, praying fervently, fasting the whole nine yards. And so I had this bug, does prayer work? Is it as effective as Christians claim? And not just Christians, 
but I've traveled to Indonesia and Thailand and Korea, South Korea, and all these different places. They're all praying too. We're all praying, no matter where you are and what part of the world. Of course, there's more atheistic uh, parts than, than others. Sure. But is it effective? What does it do? What, does it you know, portray God in a certain light? Is it a good light? Hmm. And then sort of divine echoes reconciling prayer with the uncontrolling love of God. How does prayer work in a world where God is not in control of every single event that happens hmm. and where there is such a thing as the freedom to make choices to, of course, freedom is all philosophical discussion of how free we are, hmm. but we have a degree of freedom some more than others. Hmm. So how does prayer make sense in a world where God is not in control. Hmm. My so listeners, that's where the book is. Yeah. Okay. My listeners will be familiar with that language because we had Thomas Ord on the podcast a while back. Great. And he mm-hmm. talked about his book, uh, God Can't. And mm-hmm. so then I'm assuming kind of the premise then of your book, what it um, assumes is that uh, we're praying to a God then who's not in control, kind of as Thomas would have said. Yeah, exactly right. And, and that should make a difference in yep. how we pray. Yeah, and and this as crazy as it sounds, even someone like J.P. Moreland, who's like the poster child for conservative evangelical philosophical theology, and and other people of his ilk, is yeah. I mean, there's certain things that God cannot do because we are free creatures, and God is not in the habit of forcefully controlling people's will. As although there's some scriptures that we can debate about. Yeah. But yeah, that's where where I'm leaning towards these days. And so prayer should make a difference. Praying either to someone who can snap his fingers yeah. and instantly heal someone or someone who can't. Mm. Uh, that's that's going to make a difference in how we pray. Yeah. So one of the first things you uh, kind of tackle on in the book is, uh, I thought it was really interesting, the language that we use when we pray. Hmm. how that language that we use um, says a lot about how we think about God. And I really, that really made me think about and maybe even overthink my own prayers. Cause I think it's, I think it's so true because for me, like I'm in this season of uh, you know, for lack of a better word, deconstruction, reconstruction. And I'm thinking about like a lot concerning what I think about God. And one of the things I've noticed is I use like a lot of, go-to catchphrases in my prayers mm. and you and i both kind of grew up in in that world especially like at, at college and at nyack and stuff <laughs> and so you kind of get what i'm saying but for for our listeners i mean you know phrases like you know god please be with this person or um you know god please pour out your love on this person as if i if i didn't pray those things then god wouldn't be with that person mm. or wouldn't pour out his love on that person and those kinds of prayers you point out in your book are problematic because the Bible teaches that God is always with us, um, mm-hmm. that God is love. So he's always loving us. So my prayers don't really, you know, like play much of a role in that kind of stuff. So can you maybe talk more about uh, what our language and prayer says about what we believe about God and maybe even like offer some tips to people who are in the stages of deconstruction concerning like mm-hmm. how, how to pray. Cause sometimes it feels like it's almost easier not to pray than it is to think or overthink through what I'm praying and how I should be praying. And then you get lost in all these thoughts and you end up really not doing anything. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So man, there's so much there. Um, I mean, right. There's so many ways to pray, mm. right. There's prayers of consecration and 
protests and exaltation and lament and thanksgiving and yeah. like i said my book is tackling specifically petitionary prayer so one thing i'd like to say to your listeners is it's a general point about prayer and and it at base, it should be just simple. I mean, really, we're sharing our heart with God. It shouldn't be an academic endeavor performed with scientific rigor. Right. <laughs> sure. Your prayer is simply talking to God. Yeah. And it's so fascinating because in talking to people, it's almost like to say prayer as opposed to talking to God, it creates a subtle shift. Hmm. It's almost like for some mentioning prayer as sort of this magical incantation where it opens up a vast experience into the, the heavenlies somehow, but some kind of portal or something. Yeah. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's just, it's talking to God and there ought to be a child likeness to it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think we're encouraged to have a raw and unfiltered relationship with God where we can like serenade or shout or scream or sit in silence or share vulnerably and simply be congruent and communicate what is ever on our heart's mind. Mm. So there should be, for me, I mean, it should be really simple. But, or maybe I should use the word end. Mm. Uh, And it's not as simple as we would make, as it first appears, particularly if we're talking about petitionary prayer. Yeah. So there's what I call relational prayer, right? Let it be simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, let it be God pour out your, your love and aunt Mary because she's suffering right now. Mm-hmm. I think it should come from the heart and in certain respects, I don't think it should be so complicated, but if we're thinking that God pour your comfort and love and aunt Mary, if we're thinking that by doing so that we're actually somehow motivating or empowering or moving God, to somehow do that which is already according to God's nature, which is to love and comfort, et cetera, then my, my question would be, yeah, is that effective? Mm. So there's, there's a childlikeness to relational prayer, but if we're, if we're engaging in petitionary prayer, that's when I can ruffle a few feathers, mm. right? That's where I say, what, how are those prayers really portraying God? Mm. Um, is God really this arbitrary, unfair deity whom we have to sort of cajole to do that which is loving. Mm. And God is sitting there like, my goodness, I hear your prayer. But if you only, if you can get 39 more people in some kind of prayer chain, and I'm telling you, if, because I need 40. And once I get 40, then you know what? I'm going to flip that switch. I'm going to instantly snap my fingers and heal aunt mary i don't think prayer is like that i don't think god is like that Mm. what kind of god is that yeah then another person who's got the same illness the same situation god says you know what i'm just going to choose not to Mm. but then another person you know what i'm going to choose it's just this arbitrary unfair god is just not someone I'd like to portray to the world. And by the way, there's atheists or agnostics who look at this kind of, uh, this kind of, um, I don't know, what's the right word to say, this fickle God. Uh, mm. And they say, yeah, I don't want to be in relationship with that kind of God. Yeah. A God who literally has the power to instantly heal, 
but chooses not to. Yep. But then chooses to do so on other occasions. Hmm. Uh, and then maybe we'll give this Christian a, a f- free and closed parking spot close to the retail store to do some shopping. <laughs> but yeah, that, that kid with leukemia, nah. Even though they have 150 people praying in that large church, I'm, I'm not going to touch that. Hmm. So for me, that matters. And that says a lot about who God is. And for me, it can either cause people to be closer to God or create distance, which I think also matters very much. Mm. So how, how then, like, talk to me, like, practically, like, how, what does it look like then to pray for, um, like, the Aunt Mary, Mary, who's got some kind of illness and doctors don't know what to do. And, you know, you don't live near her. She lives in another state. Like, what does it look like to offer up a prayer on that person's behalf or even like think about like the hurricane that's in all the news right now you know like the florida's bracing the bahamas right now are getting hammered like what does it look like to um pray for those for those people right well let's let's do someone a little closer to the heart that's you know i mean they're all what you listed is pretty uh yeah pretty intense but shootings yeah right i mean yeah goodness after every mass shooting Thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. Yeah. Like, what are we saying, people, that like God is sitting there? Yeah, I just need some more thoughts and prayers. And if I get that, I'm going to stop the next mass shooting. Hmm. Like, what are, you know, uh, or what's ironic is like this, there was a mass shooting in a, in a church. And it's like, okay, so prayers that these people were praying for God to love them and protect them and keep them. They did absolutely nothing. Mm. But then you're telling me to pray that God would comfort their loved ones. So, so God, you know, it's so, uh, yeah, yeah. But listen, I, I don't, there's, I'm not, um, there's no judgment here. Sure. Sure. There's just this understanding that, there, there could be a better way. And I think there is a better way. Hmm. So let's say if there's a mass shooting, it is my belief that God did not want that mass shooting to occur. Hmm. Right. That, that when that mass shooter pulled that trigger, God couldn't have unilaterally single-handedly intervened and stopped that mass shooter. Hmm. If God could, then God chose not to, then who is that God monster? Yeah. Um, So it's my understanding that God didn't want that to happen. That Mm -hmm. God is grieving with us, right? The spirit is groaning with us for birth pangs, waiting for the the kingdom, the kingdom of God to fully manifest here on earth. Mm -hmm. And as far as the typical prayers, we pray for comfort, for love, for those who are affected by mass shootings. I mean, yes, there's, again, there's a sense of let's pour our hearts out to God, Hmm. but let's not do it in a way where we think by doing so, God's going to automatically increase his love in people's lives Hmm. as if God's some kind of genie who needs to sort of, if we rub him a little bit with our prayers, then God will do it. Hmm. So it's my understanding that God is already loving and comforting and pouring out his love to the extent that God is able with these victims and their families while respecting their free will, by honoring their free will, and by keeping in mind 
uh, various variables that are at play uh, mm. in, in their in their community. So, in other words, God can't instantly download comfort if somebody is not open to receiving His comfort, mm. right? So, how I would pray is my prayers are deeply uh, marinated in praise and thanksgiving, knowing that God didn't want it, knowing that God didn't will or quote, allow it to happen for some greater good. Mm. And so I could say, God, we praised you for being good. Thank you for being intimately close to the families of the victims of this horrific shooting. We know you are grieved and you mourn with us. We are aware you are angry that this has happened again. Heavenly, earthly, motherly father, we need this violence to stop now. It tears our communities in this world apart. It breaks our hearts, and we know it breaks yours. Mm-hmm. We thank you that you comfort and mend the family's broken hearts to the extent that you are able. And we hope that the families accept your love and experience your tenderness towards them in this painful time. And then here's, here's the crux of the matter, especially when we get into my book, what I call Conspiring Prayer. In other words, knowing that God doesn't want mass shootings and it's not God's will for this to happen, how can we join God mm. in creating a, an environment where mass shootings no longer happen? Or at the very least, how can we be God's hands and feet to comfort these people who are deeply hurting, who have lost loved ones in this massacre? So then I would pray, faithful God, what can we do together to stop this madness, right? Or at the very least, to help these families experience your tangible love. We don't want to be passive bystanders. We, don't, we, we do want to be spirit-led, active adventurers, paving the way for justice, peace, and healing. Mm. God, we attune our hearts, ears to your voice at this moment. What is it that you would have us do as your hands and your feet? so that your empire of love can reign in this hour, Mm. right? So, and that takes listening, that takes silence, it's shutting the music down, putting the technology off, and then listening, God, just like Jesus, God, what is it you would have me do in this moment? Mm. And I'll tell you what, even like for anyone, those are the riskiest, most dangerous prayers we can pray. Mm. Because instead of putting all the responsibility on God, which is the traditional understanding of petitionary prayer, we're saying, yeah, God already wants the shalom that we're praying for. God, how can we join you in what you're already doing and wanting to do even further? Mm. That is some dangerous praying right there. Yeah, that's good. It reminds me of uh, that story in Exodus. I think it's Exodus 14 where uh, Moses uh says i think it was moses said to the people uh like you know the lord will fight for you and you don't need to be still and then Mm. god says to moses why why are you talking to me you know tell the people to get walking right (laughs) (laughs) we always quote exodus thanks to it yeah when i quote 14 but 15 the next verse is like god's like what's up man (laughs) get going Mm -hmm. tell the israelites to move on exactly raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea yeah that's right What I love about what you said, though, too, is that, um, you know, it's about a, a relational prayer. It's about sharing your heart with God. And it almost makes me feel like they're, you know, like after reading your book and hearing like a lot of people talk about prayer and, you know, deconstruction and everything, it's like there can be a lot of pressure on thinking about how to pray and what prayer should look like for you. 
but I really like the fact that it's, you know, you make it that it's, it's a personal thing with you and God and let your heart spill out to him. Just be mindful of the mindset behind the words that you're praying. Absolutely. That very going back to basics, prayer is simply talking to God. Yeah. God who is not up there, who's actually up there, down there, all around and inside of us. Mm. Right. Who's not far from any one of us. Yeah. We can simply draw nigh into God and God will draw nigh into us. Absolutely. That's That's really helpful. So talk to me about what it looks like to live um, a prayerful life. And I want to read a quote for you, or for our listeners, I should say, real quick from the book. And uh, maybe you can take us a little bit deeper into it. But in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says that we should pray without ceasing. Again, that's a, a phrase that's thrown around a lot in the church. And in the book, you say this. You say, Jesus is the prime example of someone who lived his life as an unceasing prayer to God. Uh, Not only was he praying on the many occasions when he rose well before dawn to speak to God, but his entire life was a sweet aroma unto God. When Jesus held precious children, found lepers and healed them, reached out to those considered sinners or losers or lunatics, or spoke against the religious leaders of the day, he was the full embodiment of a prayerful life. So what do you mean by like the full embodiment of a prayerful life? And what would you say it looks like I don't know, like for an everyday person to pray without ceasing. Like, can I do that at my retail job at the Apple store? Uh, my wife is a stay-at-home mom. Like, what does that look like for her? Uh, like yeah. my sister-in-law works at a veterinarian office where she's on the phone all day long working with pets. Like, what does it look like to do this in a practical, everyday way? Sure. I mean, I see Jesus as someone who was in a deep and profound relationship with mm-hmm. God. So profound that Jesus said that, that he and the father were one. I mean, it's yeah. a pretty wild thing to say. Like, yeah. And then in, in John 5, he said the son could do nothing by himself. He can mm. only do what he sees his father doing. So a logical question is for me, it was like, well, where and when does the father show the son what he wants him to do? Mm. And I think where, and so in other words, where does Jesus get his mission statement for the day? And I have to imagine it was through relational intimacy with God. Yeah. And Jesus was one of those like very early in the morning while it is still dark kind of prayer folk. Hmm. And I'll, that's definitely not me. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I'm, I'm more of a day walker and a prayer as I go kind of folk. Yeah. So I believe it was out of the intimacy with God and, and others. Um, and that's another part of the conversation. But I, I believe because of that, Jesus could be the full embodiment of a prayerful life. I mean, Jesus showed us how it was done and what kind of life that looked like and life that was dedicated to the transformation and emancipation of others, no matter what the cost. So what does it look like for someone who works a retail job or as a stay at home mom to pray without ceasing and be the full embodiment of prayerful life? Let me tell you, I have good news. Okay, good. (laughs) I'm not sure it's possible. All right. That's a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That should take some of the load off. Uh-huh. Yes, I know greater work shall we do. Yeah. But who the heck prays without ceasing while working at a job in retail or while parenting their beautiful right. of chaos? Sure. But that being said here, I think we can engage in a partial embodiment of a prayerful life. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm just being honest, right? Like when I see that pray without ceasing, I'm like, who in the world can do that? Yeah. Maybe you're like in a cave somewhere between like sleeping for 14 hours a day and then I don't know Hmm. but whether we're parenting or retailing or lawyering or typing or surfing with buddies 
or working in, in a vet, in veterinarian office, we can learn to appreciate the presence of God in prayer, both individually and corporately, hmm. and allow God's presence to solidify our identity as her beloved. Hmm. And wherever we find ourselves continually asking God, like Jesus did, God, what are you doing? And can I join you in that? Yeah. But then we can either say yes or we can decline. So for me, like when I'm exhausted from watching, you know, our two-year-old all day and my wife is exhausted <laughs> from a full day at the office, and for whatever reason, she comes home, our wills collide, causing a massive blowout. Mm. I typically do the spiritual thing, uh, maybe not during that, but certainly after. Okay, God. And I go to prayer and I say, I wasn't my best self here. Mm. You remind me of who I am, who my wife is. Then, then I can ask, what is it that you want me to do in this moment? Mm. And it usually has something to do with apologizing or listening to her suffering or giving her space to move toward her best self, even when my anxious self desperately wants to check in and ask, do you love me? Do you mm. stay or care about me? Because I'm, I'm a very, what they call an anxious pursuer. Yeah. I, I have abandonment issues. Yeah, me but too. Those, <laughs> those are some of the things I think about when yeah. when you ask about the embodiment of a prayerful life it's like mm. it's communicated verbally but it's also communicated non-verbally mm. like a prayerful life is yeah we we go to god in prayer and that sort of knowing who we are and for me prayer is that place where it's like the prodigal coming home like and i might have to do it 50 times a day mm. you know it's time to come home and the father tells me who i am Mm. The father hugs me. The father kisses me compassionately, as the text says. Yeah. Then when I'm reminded of who I am and what, who my identity really is, I find that out of that space, I can say, okay, God, what are you doing? What do you want me to do with my wife? What do you want me to do with my kid? Uh, I'm out. I, I teach classes. What do you want me to do right here and right now? A student just said that they're really not feeling well. Do I just go with the class or because I'm in an environment where I can do risky things? Can I say, uh, listen to God, Mark, um, ask her if, if, if we, the class can pray for her. Mm. No, that's too risky. <laughs> uh, well, I'm teaching a subject, no, but it's, it's risky. It's dangerous. Mm. And, and out of that place, and then I say, yes, let's do it. Let's go for it. And mm. something beautiful can happen. So I think wherever we find ourselves to, you know, we could be on the train, we could be anywhere, right? Just even if we have to keep our eyes open or close them, daddy, mommy, what's going on? Mm. Let me share a little bit of my heart. Can you remind me of who I am? And in these next moments, help me to kick ass in Jesus name. Yeah. So that's what I think of when I that's think good. of sort of a, uh, sort of the embodiments or at least a partial embodiment yeah. of a prayerful life. That's good. It reminds me uh, earlier you said about like, letting prayer be kind of recognizing uh, God in other people. And <laughs> I think for me, that's one of the things I've been really challenging myself with is like before I go into work, I've got maybe a, like a two minute walk. And so I'll just pray, you know, help me to see you in the people that I meet today. And then when I see those people kind of, you know, as I hear their stories, as I hear what's going on in their life, try to be mindful of, you know, what does it seem like God is doing in their life and kind of what you said about conspiring prayer about, mm -hmm. 
you know, how can I conspire with God and what he's doing in that person's life? And I feel like it brings a lot of proximity between me and other people and therefore mm. to almost care for them even, even more. You know? I mean, what's the alternative? We know yeah. the alternative. God is not in them. God yeah. is somehow not with them right. until we show up and we sort of, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Uh, start praying or, or magical prayers and we, we lived that life before <laughs> i know i know right. i know yeah. <laughs> pleading the blood on them <laughs> yeah, right <laughs> whatever that means <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, so the big topic uh that you tackle in the book and you've talked about it is petitionary prayer hmm. uh, or prayer that puts this request before god uh, whether it's health finances world issue gun violence war whatever and in particular you talk about uh, petitionary prayer that happens at a distance uh, and I think in the book, at some point you say, you're not so much challenging the idea of petitionary prayer that happens up close and in person, but more right. petitionary prayer at a distance. So can you talk to us about like, what is the difference between these two types of petitionary prayer and maybe give a couple examples of each and hey. like, why do you support one, but the other one you're kind of questioning? Yeah, that's a very good question. Okay. Let me see if I can tell Big question. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I know it sounds confusing. So yeah. we're, we're talking about, Mark, what's the difference between praying in your room, let's say, all by yourself for Aunt Mary, who's 500 miles away, yeah. versus um, Aunt Mary uh, being in your proximity and praying for her in that moment? Yep. So this is where I think there's so many nuances to the conversation. So... Yeah, I mean, I'm a proponent of petitionary prayer, particularly mm -hmm. effective petitionary prayer, as opposed to ineffective petitionary prayer that makes God look really bad. And, and we didn't talk about this other part, but contributes to suffering in the world. Mm -hmm. But the question at hand, um, praying for someone from a distance without their knowledge and praying for someone face-to-face -face is slightly different. Those who are being prayed for at a distance, often without their knowledge uh, and consent might not be open to an experience from God in the moment we're praying. Hmm. So keep in mind, my understanding of God is a God who is loving and seeking to heal to God's maximal capacity in each moment. So for example, I could pray, God, pour out your comfort on my aunt Susan, who is grieving the loss of her daughter. First off, I already believe God is pouring out his comfort on aunt Susan to the greatest extent possible while respecting her free will. And there are other variables at play that even if she was open to it, that might that sort of might restrict God in some sense. Second and related, I could pray for God to pour out his love on Aunt Susan. But in that moment, Aunt Susan is busy doing the laundry. And mm. in that moment, not open to what God wants to do, right? So, so therefore, praying for others from a distance offers unique challenges that might not be present when praying for someone who's willing and consenting the presence of grace of God. So praying for someone in person or over the phone allows that other person a choice at that moment, a God of the here and now, right? Mm. To open up to God and submit to God's beautiful working in his or her life. Mm. Same goes for praying for oneself. And this gets into my understanding of God needing an open door policy to do her best work. Mm. And so for that reason, proximity face-to-face, eye-to-eye, and hand-to-shoulder prayerful interactions are different than, let's say, praying for someone who doesn't even know that they're being prayed for. Sure. So what is going to be more effective, right? Praying for Aunt Susan 500 miles away who doesn't even know we're praying for her 
into a God who's already desiring to love and comfort her and is actively seeking to do so, or praying for Susan in person, who's experiencing the power of human touch, being infused with communal hope, hmm. and is open and surrendered to what God wants to do in the moment. So those are some slight nuances, but that's why I think there's some slight uh, difference in dynamics at play from prayers at a distance and prayers for up close and personal. Hmm. So it's all about that relational piece, really, because like you said, if I'm just praying for somebody, they have no idea. They could be open to my prayers. They might not be. Uh, but if I'm with somebody in that relational space, whether it's over the phone or using mm-hmm. Zoom on the internet or face-to-face, whatever it might be, uh, there's a, a greater possibility that they will be open to uh, whatever prayers I'm offering. Absolutely. And, and that also extra piece of, man, God is doing whatever God can do to, to love and comfort mm-hmm. and heal. And so that's going to, so doing it in the moment with someone who's open to God's presence, it just it invites a new moment in mm-hmm. this present moment for God to do something new and creative with someone whose door is wide open to uh, his, uh, her presence. Sure. So in my upbringing, um, and you met, you mentioned this passage in, in your book, but I thought maybe we could talk a little bit more about it. But one of the passages in the Bible that's often uh, pointed to in support of petitionary prayer at a distance is wherein uh, James, he references the story of Elijah. And Elijah's praying for no rain and, you know, God answered his prayer by kind of holding off the rain for, I think it was six months. And three, Elijah. Three years and six months, I think. Oh yeah. Three years and six months. So uh, Elijah, uh, James says was, you know, he says he was human just like us. Woo. And so the idea that I was taught, and I'm sure maybe some of our listeners too, is that yeah. we, can be, we can be confident in praying just like he did to see the results just like he got. And so I guess my question is, if James isn't referencing uh, the story of Elijah to encourage us to participate in uh, asking God to do some distant, crazy, incredible thing, then like what, what's the deal with this particular passage of scripture? Glenn, why are you asking me so many hard questions? I know, right? I'm throwing like split finger fastballs and I want like four minute answers. <laughs> I know, I know. I absolutely love this. I've been on so many podcasts where I don't get this kind of challenging questions. I really, really do appreciate it. So let me try to be quick. Um, James, James, James 5, Elijah. James is encouraging the elders of the church. This is how I see it. Yeah. To lay hands on and pray for the sick, yeah. The sinful and those in need of healing prayer. Because that's the context, right? Of what he's right. talking about in the bigger the picture. Context is not intercessory prayer on behalf of others from a distance, mm. but rather prayer that is up close and personal. Yeah. So as I already said, I mean, I'm I'm totally uh, you know open to face to face and hand to hand prayer. And there's some research about that too. I mean, that sort of uh, proximal uh, praying. But it's petitioning prayer on behalf of others uh, from a distance that sort of I'm, I'm wanting to reimagine here. Hmm. So to the chagrin of some listeners, uh, I don't believe the mythic narrative concerning Elijah is to be taken literally. Hmm. I know, I know, I'm such a bad Christian. Uh-oh, heretic, um, heretic. <laughs> I don't believe Elijah's prayers asking God to stop the rain for three and a half years hmm. would have, now this is why. I, I don't think it would have influenced God, a God of love, 
to wreak havoc on his creation in that manner. Mm. Like when we think about the account, like do we really want to believe that God digs that kind of stuff to pray for such an atrocity on the earth? Mm. I mean, that kind of act to cause a drought for three and a half years would have caused an enormous amount of suffering Mm. and death, by the way, to, you know, plants and animals and human beings. So I don't think a loving God would do such a thing to teach his kids a lesson in righteous living, which Mm. is the context, right? Yeah. So I suspect James's pastoral intention was to inspire the community to prayer. And Mm. what better way to do that than share an incredible story about a revered God lover whose prayers were so powerful that he could stop the rain. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the, the things that comes up for me. I mean, just think about it too. I mean, it, do we really want to have that portrayal of God? Yeah. A God who, if we just talk to him and say, hey, God, um, can you just stop the rain? <laughs> and when we think about tsunamis, when we think about disastrous hurricanes and yeah. storms that have, uh, you know, cost the lives of many, many I remember that one tsunami in Indonesia. God, I think that was hundreds of thousands, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, come on. Yeah. Uh, God, can you just stop it? Um, I can, but I'm going to choose not to once again. Yeah. I mean, so, yes, it's it's powerful story. Um, but do we want to take that absolutely 100% literal? If we do, we have some real uh, questions to answer about, God's character, about his nature, and really the the understanding of prayer. Mm. If it's supposed to be that instant kind of talk to God and God instantly snaps his fingers and makes something happen. So, you know, I understand there's there's questions I need to answer too, Mm. but I'm willing to lean on the side of love and God's character, uh, being a a loving, uh, uncontrolling, beautiful uh, God who, you know, wants to increase shalom at, at all costs, even to yeah. the point of coming into flesh and seeking to love and bring forth harmony and shalom for humankind, teaching us how to do it, showing us, modeling us, and, and uh, inevitably um, losing uh, his life. So mm-hmm. that's the God that I understand to be in, in and through, beautifully shown through Jesus. I don't think that's the kind of God who would, um, yeah, who's just into causing a lot of suffering and death to teach some kind of weird lesson. Which yeah. Because yeah. when you're dead, what kind of lesson are you actually learning? But, right. Uh-oh. That's true. You know, I, I really, that's one of the things I've really been wrestling with over the last, this past year. And it really came to a, to a head when I read Thomas Ord's uh, book, you know, God can't. And, Mm-hmm. just that idea that um you know when we when we when we pray are we are we praying to a god who is completely in control of every single thing like a chess game where he's just moving all the pieces doing all the things and he can do whatever he he wants and you know think about like storms you know think about like right now all the talk on the east coast here is this hurricane dorian and it just hit the bahamas at a category 5 and gusts of 220 mile an hour winds. I mean, nothing can withstand that. 
And yet there's people who I've seen like even like on Facebook who are, you know, praying that it's going to miss, uh, it was headed towards Florida. Now it's going to miss it. Everybody's like, Oh, thank God that he has you know spared us or, you know, whatever it's like, but, but he didn't spare these like other people then like that. It doesn't make any sense that he would spare you because of your prayer. But what about people in the Bahamas who are going to literally lose everything and maybe their lives? Yeah. Once again, how do our prayers portray God? Yeah. How do they portray God? Yeah. And I think the, the loving, beautiful, um, you know, virtuoso of love should be portrayed in the best, most beautiful light possible, mm. not only for ourselves and our own hearts, because when we hold to a, uh, an arbitrary God who, yeah, I'm just going to push this hurricane over there. I just need 100 people praying to do that. I mean, that's going to create some dissonance in our own hearts and, and create some distance even on an unconscious level. Yeah. Right. So not only does it create potential distance in our heart when God's character isn't portrayed um, as beautifully as it should, but when we pray and we talk like that on Facebook, people who don't look at God and say, man, these people are, what are they? I, yeah. They're talking about how great God is, but I want nothing to do with that yeah. kind of God. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's why it's so important for me to talk about this stuff and kind of reframe and relook and reimagine petitionary prayer in a different light. Yeah, and I feel like it raises it raises a lot of questions. I know people ask me because I've talked a lot about how you know I I see God now as this God who can't control certain things, and you know, people are like, well, how you know how do you say that God's not omnipotent, you know, not all powerful, and you know, lots of questions get fired at me that I don't know the answer to. I'm like, you know, I'd rather not know the answer or say, I don't know, than to say that God is all powerful, but yet for whatever reason stands by and lets children get raped or lets people lose their, their homes in a storm. You know what I mean? Like I'd rather not have the answer to your question. Then, right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I lean on uh, to sort of write that God is love and apparently yeah. doesn't seem to be controlling every event that occurs yeah. As opposed to, yeah, God is in 100% full control and can instantly snap his fingers whenever he wants to change the outcome of the situation, but chooses not. Like, wait, where are we going to lean on that, mm. on those two sides? And, and by the way, I mean, there's really good answers and responses to, you know, um, God's uh, power and what that looks like in sort of a process theology framework. Mm. Um, and so there is a sense, and even Thomas Ord uses the notion that sort of God is more powerful, but in, in it's a different kind of power that we're talking about. Hmm. It's sort of power always funneled through this understanding of love, because love comes first in, in God's uh, in essence, God's nature. Hmm. So uh, power is always funneled through love. It's loving power that doesn't coerce, that's others... Uh, you know, it's always non-coercive and, and others giving, others empowering. And it's, um, and for me, that is powerful. That's a different understanding of power. It's, and in the Bible, it might be called what, sort of a weak power yeah. uh, compared to sort of humans, autocratic, authoritarian, brute power that sort of forces uh, one's will and way into other situations. And other mm. yeah. That's helpful. Thank you. Uh, last question for you. And uh, then I'm going to let you go. 
But uh, this question is more along the lines of uh, reading the Bible. And I know it could be, this could be like a rabbit hole and that's why I'm going to have to bring you on. This would be like a preview of part two with Mark Harris. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the book, you talk about uh, reading the Bible uh, and you talk about it specifically reading it through a lens of what you call quadrilateral hermeneutic of love. And I, I read that section a couple of times, but I would just love it if you could uh, maybe give me a brief overview of what exactly uh, that means. Cause I, I found it fascinating. Yeah. Um, okay. So in the book, Divine Echoes, I called it a quadrilateral hermeneutic of love, basically a four part framework yeah. lens that, which I look at, but I've changed it to a five part. All right. Uh, they were pentalateral here. The evolution. So, <laughs> right. So yeah. after many years of wrestling and reflection, I cannot with a clear conscience hold to what might be called a flat reading of scripture where all texts fully disclose and reveal the true nature of reality and of God. Mm. So there's no way I can say, yes, God killed those Egyptian children or yes, God killed those billions of sinful and rebellious men, women, and children, animals in the flood. Yeah. Uh, I just can't say with a clear conscience, yes, God burned people alive for not obeying him. Mm. So the list, uh, the list goes on. Yeah. So what I, what I asked myself is I said, what does these passages look like through a framework, a lens uh, that sort of holds love as the highest uh, ethical standard, right? Mm -hmm. So that pentalateral hermeneutic of love is sort of a lens that I look through the scriptures to really help me determine what are culturally conditioned and sub-Christ-like portrayals of God, a little Bordian terminology there, Mm. and what passages have a higher likelihood of reflecting and refracting the incredible, beautiful, loving character of God. Mm. For example, we talked about James, right? Yeah. Looked at uh, Elijah and him praying. And so I look at that and I say, okay, so is that reminiscent of who God manifests in the flesh as Jesus is? Is that who a loving God is to cause a three and a half year drop because somebody asked him to, to teach people a lesson? Hmm. And I have to say, no. <laughs> um, then I ask myself, is there something else going on here? But I just, I don't say no willy nilly. Hmm. And that's what this framework helps me do. And it's this five part lens. I say, well, <clears throat> does it exhibit the fruit of the spirit? right? It's a sincere question. So this framework is completely a biblical framework for me. Is that, is the, you know, causing that kind of damage and death to creation, to humans, to plants, to animals, is that a fruit of the spirit? Mm. Uh, I don't think so. When we look at the biblical definition of love, right, in 1 Corinthians 13, does that fall underneath the umbrella of the biblical definition of love, Mm. right? Um, does it let, we have the only explicit parabolic picture Jesus gave of God, the father found in the story of the prodigal father, or some people call it the prodigal son, Mm. right? Is that something the father would do Mm. uh, in that story? Then I go to perfect love described in Matthew five, a God who reigns love on the just and the unjust who is, is, is kind to the ungrateful and wicked, Mm. No, I don't think so. And then the other part is looking at the radical self-giving others empowering life of Jesus, who's the full revelation of God. Is that something Jesus would do? Nah, I can't, nope, nope, can't do it. Mm. 
So when I go through all five of those parts of the lens, I say, you know what? There must be something going on with this passage. For me, it really doesn't, um, it doesn't look like it's accurately portraying who God is according to uh, what love is. Mm. So that's something that's helped me over time. And, you know, it doesn't answer every question. Sure. But it probably opens up a lot. But for me, that's where I'm kind of leaning towards lately. And it's really helped me uh, as I read through uh, the biblical text. That's really helpful. Uh, I'm going to let you go because we okay. are nearing the end of our time. Uh, I wish good. I could talk to you all day, but I'm going to have you back on again. And uh, we're going to talk about your new book that's coming out. And what is that? Basically, yeah, I don't know the title, but it's really yeah. the deconstruction, reconstruction process through the lens of psychology, theology, and philosophy. And really, the pastor heart of me, the therapist part of me really wants to help people move through this process with mm-hmm. a little bit more understanding, a little bit more skills and principles to, to move through a little bit more successfully. Yeah, That's awesome. And uh, I just want to say before, before you go, I am knowing you personally and having gone to school with you, um, I just want to say that I am extremely proud of everything that you're doing. And uh, I really thank you for the voice that you have been in my life. I know a lot of my listeners uh, follow you on Facebook and uh, I know you've been a big influence on them. So thank you for your work and thank you for just paving the way for a lot of us. I really, I'm really grateful for you. Glenn, thank you so much for your time. I have nothing but love for you, admiration. You inspire me. I love your work. And I, too, cannot wait for your book. Oh, boy. <laughs> I know. Put the pressure off. Well, here we go. <laughs> you have a book or two or three or four in you, brother. I know that. We'll see where it goes. And I'll, I'll definitely send it to you to read and uh, write something about it. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Thanks, but I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, Glenn. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.